Uh, open your Bibles, if you will, to First, Second Timothy, chapter four. Exposition, week in, week out. We've come to First Timothy, chapter four. Um, it has been kind of interesting. I, I think I'm going to accomplish Second Timothy without any breaks whatsoever. We kind of started, and every week we've been in Second Timothy. I, I trust that uh, next week, and then the next week, I'm I'm hoping to finish this great book. Today, though, we come verses one through five of Second Timothy chapter four. Let me let me read it for you. Paul writes, I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy... Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. My message this morning is entitled, Preach the Word. The phrase comes right there from verse 2. It's the main point of the text. It says, Preach the Word. Everything else in these verses center around this one command. As a result, even as we go through it, we're going to spend most of our time on those three words. Preach the Word. It is a major focus of my work week in, week out as I stand up here most Sunday mornings for you and preach God's Word to you. It's what consumes my life. Is this really what Paul says here to Timothy? Preach the Word. Be around studying the Word and knowing it and preaching it. Every week of my life, i got one single text that I just pour over. I think about it, as you know. I most often have it memorized. I go to bed at night, I'm thinking about it. When I wake in the morning, I think about it. I listen to sermons about the passage. I read commentaries about the passage that I might come here having known it and eternalized it myself to bring it to you and then here on this Sunday morning. I've been doing so for a little over ten years. I went uh, to the website where I keep all my notes. They're all public. Every sermon I've ever preached is out there. And I counted them up. This is sermon number 496 at Rock Valley Bible Church. That's a, it's a lot of sermons. It's, a, it's been a, a lot of work. It's been a delight and a joy. But it is really my fulfillment, trying to fulfill and complete my duty in chapter 4, verse 2, of preaching the Word. We're going to get to that. But before Paul gets to that of preaching the Word, he spends a whole verse bringing the severity or the seriousness of what I've entitled my first point this morning to hang our thoughts, the gravity the gravity of the command to preach God's Word. He says it right here in verse 1, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. What Paul is doing in verse 1 is just piling weight upon weight upon weight upon weight that when the command comes in verse 2 to preach the Word, it would come clearly. It would come with weight and with power, as I have said, with gravity. Six phrases in all, each of them just... Just lay weight upon preaching the Word. And if Paul had simply said this, I charge you, Timothy, to preach the Word, that would have been enough. Timothy respected Paul. He knew Paul. He owed his life really to Paul. He was loved. As Paul wrote these instructions, I'm sure throughout all of Second Timothy, I'm sure that everything he wrote, Timothy took very seriously. And would have looked at and would have would have read and prayed over and pleaded that God would help him in that process. So if he had just said, Timothy, I charge you to preach the word, that would have been enough. But as the ancient Hebrew song goes, Dayenu, it would have been sufficient. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. It would have been sufficient, but he goes on. Now he says that he says, I solemnly charge you. He says, Timothy here, it's a solemn charge. It's not just a charge. I'm not flippant about this. This is solemn. This is, this is um, deathbed serious, Timothy. In fact, he is on his deathbed. It says in verse 6, I'm already being poured out to drink offering. It means I'm, I'm already dying. The, the blood is already coming, already flowing from me. 
I'm about to die. Here, this is serious of serious things. I solemnly charge you, Timothy. It also gives weight. I anything mean, in this whole letter that I'm telling you, this is the weightiest. This is the crux. I'm solemnly charging you, Timothy. And that would have been sufficient. But he goes on, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. He brings the heavenly witness to call. God Himself, the Creator of the world, the One who saved Timothy's soul, before whom we all must give an account, says Timothy, this is serious business. Solemnly charging you in the presence of God. It's not just me telling you this in some back corner. This is me telling you this in full public arena, in full divine, human, sovereign, universal arena. God's hearing me when I'm telling you this. And if Paul had told that to Timothy. What would have been enough? But he goes on. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. And here he tips the scale to the most solemn command in all of 2 Timothy. In chapter 2, verse 14, he already used some of these languages. Remind them of these things and solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words. But all of a sudden now, it's, it's deeper and heavier and more weighty than anything else that he has said to this point on. He brings two members of the Trinity into the equation, the Father and the Son. And this just adds weight to the charge to preach the Word. But he's not done yet. He begins to expand upon Jesus and who Jesus is. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead. Here's bringing to you the great judgment of all who have ever lived, both of us who are alive and those who are dead. That may have been implied when we talked about God, but here it is explicitly explained that Jesus Christ is going to judge all of mankind. And, and Paul is telling Timothy, listen, this charge I have coming to you is, is sovereign, it's a, it's a deep charge. It's solemn in light of everything, the faith that we all must face. Jesus Christ, standing before Him, standing before our judge. Paul could hardly have given more weight to it, and yet he did with these last two phrases. I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. He's bringing Paul, he's bringing Timothy to mind to the ultimate climax of history. Jesus not only judged, but He's also the King of the world by His kingdom. That is the day when Jesus appears in His second coming and establishes His kingdom and we all are under His reign. We are sitting under the feet of King Jesus. Nothing else will matter, Timothy. It's not going to matter whether you didn't do well in your great your test at school. It doesn't really matter what that person exactly said or what they did or you didn't finish this project or this or that. The only thing that's going to matter in that day is the truth of God which we've come to believe, right? So, so, so trust that and, and, and take that Word and spread that Word and don't let anything detract you from that. But keep spreading it until your dying day. So I solemnly charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, here comes, preach the Word. It's my second point here, the charge. We're going to spend a lot of time here on preaching the Word. It is the crux of what Paul is seeking to have Timothy do. It is the solution to his problems. It is the natural conclusion of all of chapter 3. Chapter 3 began in chapter 3, verse 1. But realize this, in the last days, difficult times will come because there are going to be these men who are wicked men and evil men who are going to come in and try to pull people away from the truth in the church. But you don't be like them. You, however, verse 14, chapter 3, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of. The things that you learned when you were a small boy, you've learned them and you've learned them well. You just keep going on in those things, Timothy. And you say, what are those things? Well, it's the things that you heard in the, the sacred Scripture. The sacred writings, verse 15, which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation, which is in Christ Jesus when you were a little boy, Timothy, you learned the Bible. You learned the Old Testament. And that was able to give you the wisdom to lead you to Jesus. And that's the most important thing that you have in your life. And in light of that that you have learned, just keep on that path. Keep on the path of the Old Testament which leads us to Jesus. 
You can trust it. They've been your guide. They've led you to faith in Jesus. You can trust the Scriptures. In fact, that's what my message was last week. All Scripture, verse 16, is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. There it is. You can trust it. So the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. The Scriptures are inspired without error. The Scriptures are powerful to change lives. The Scriptures are sufficient for your ministry. So Timothy, lean on the Scriptures. Preach the truth they contain. And I solemnly charge you to preach the Word. Notice the simplicity here. Preach the Word. That is, preach the message. Preach what you've come to know and trust and let this drive your life. I think the reason why Paul told Timothy to do this is because it is really his best solution to all the problems he's facing in his church. It's the best advice that Paul can give Timothy. So I spend so much time in my life studying and praying and thinking and preparing that I too might join Timothy in preaching the Word that it might have its ripple effect in the church. I just know this, that the, the, the pace of the pulpit sets the course of the church. That's what Paul is telling Timothy, right? You just, you just keep preaching that Word. The apostles knew how good preaching was to them. In Acts chapter 6, the story is recorded about how the apostles were serving food to the widows in Jerusalem. A noble deed to be sure, but pulling them away from the responsibility to preach. And remember what they said to the congregation? It is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God to serve tables. Not that the tables are bad. In fact, they appointed seven able men to, to serve the tables. A good thing. But it says we need to be about preaching the Word. It's for the importance of the church. It's a statement that the apostles placed in the priority of, of preaching. In fact, you read the book of Acts and you can see the their primacy of preaching come all the way through that. When the Holy Spirit came upon the church at Pentecost, Peter stood and preached. In fact, you can read his sermon in Acts chapter 2. Almost the whole chapter has his sermon about preaching what what he said, 3,000 souls saved that day. And then Peter and John healed this lame man and a, 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 caused a stir. And Peter stood up then and preached in Acts chapter 3. Almost the whole, you can read his whole message. Or a summary of his message at least. You, you see a whole, almost the whole chapter is devoted to what Peter preached. And soon after, there were 5,000 believers in the church. And throughout all the book of Acts, you can read sermon after sermon after sermon that was preached. When Stephen was given an opportunity to preach to the Jews, he stood in Acts chapter 7 and preached this sermon. That's almost all of chapter 7 is all the sermon, the preaching of the Word that Stephen did. When Peter came to the Gentiles, the house of Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, uh, half of chapter 10 refers to what, G, what Peter spoke. When Paul and Barnabas went on their first missionary journey, they arrived at the city in Antioch. And almost all of chapter 13 has all what... What uh, Paul spoke to the church there in the city of Antioch. Half of Acts chapter 17 records Paul's message to the Areopagus. In Acts chapter 22, Paul's preaching to the Jews just after he was arrested. He stood and preached. And you can read his whole sermon there in Acts chapter 22. And that's not to mention chapters 24 and 26, which record messages which Paul gave to Felix and Agrippa. That, that doesn't take into account also the summary statements and the activity of the early church. Acts 5.42 Every day in the temple from house to house they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus is the Christ. Philip, when he had opportunity, just a summary statement, he preached Jesus to the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts 11, there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who came to Antioch. They began speaking to the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. And we can only imagine just what that, what that meant. We don't have any content there. But there are these summary statements that have a lot there. Paul and Barnabas stayed in Antioch, teaching and preaching with many also the Word of God. In Acts 28, we see that Paul was in home imprisonment, welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. And you just read through the book of Acts and you can't fail to see the importance of preaching and the growth of the church. That's why Paul tells Timothy here to preach the Word. It's the most effective thing for your ministry, Timothy. Well, it's true of the early church in Bible times. It's true of the church ever since. Down through the, the centuries, the church has always grown through preaching. The church has been strengthened through the preaching of the Word. Church history is littered with many, many men who know as faithful preachers from Chrysostom, Chrysos, um, Gold, Sostem, Mouth, 
He was the golden mouthed boy. Lived around 400 A.D. Along with Augustine or John Huss or Martin Luther or John Calvin or John Knox or John Bunyan or Charles Wesley or George Whitfield or Charles Spurgeon or G. Campbell Morgan or D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I mean, I'm sure you could name many, many others down through the, the ages God has used in their preaching to build and edify and grow the church. He's always proclaimed, used men, God has, who proclaim the Word of God to build His church. And there's nothing else that God has given the church to help so much as preaching the Word of God. Preach the Word. That's why this, this command is here. And what Paul is telling Timothy to preach the Word was his passion. He was converted on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9. And immediately it says in Acts chapter 9, verse 20, he went into Damascus and began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. And what he started right after his conversion, he continued right on up to the day he wrote this letter. Right on up to the moment, I think, when the axe fell upon his neck. He went on multiple, multiple missionary trips preaching Jesus. And at times it was all evangelistic. At times it was really edifying people. He, he was in Corinth for 18 months proclaiming the Word of God. He was in Ephesus for three years solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just constantly preaching, constantly proclaiming, constantly getting the Word out. He knew that Christ had sent him to preach the Gospel and he wholeheartedly embraced that. He loved Preaching Christ. He lived for preaching Christ. Romans 1.15 says, Therefore, I'm eager also to get to Rome and preach the Gospel to you who are in Rome. While spending 18 months in Corinth, he said, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That was his passion to let Jesus be known. He even said, Woe to me if I preach not the Gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach it right. Woe to me if I don't preach it. i got to get it out. It's like Jeremiah. He's got the burning in his bones. He just had to get it out. As Paul's passing this on to Timothy, saying, preach the Word. Real literally, the word here is keruso. means to, to herald or to proclaim or, or to get a message out. The idea here is that we have a message from the King and we have been sent to announce this message. That doesn't matter whether they receive it or not. What matters is whether we deliver the message. Paul's telling Timothy here, Timothy, deliver the message. Preach the Word. The illustration of the mailman is a great illustration here, right? What's a mailman's job? It's to deliver the mail. Now you put it in the mailbox, it goes to the, the post office, he gets his big thing in the post office, and then he goes door to door to door to door, delivering the mail. Now what would you think of the postman if he opened your mail, kind of read it and kind of scratched some things out and added it and changed it and then put it in your mailbox? You don't want that. We're mailmen. We want to deliver the message. That's exactly what he's talking about here. That's what K. Russo is. To, to herald a message from the King. So we have. We have a message from King Jesus to the world. That God became flesh in Jesus Christ. He came to live among us. He came to live among us to rescue us from our sin. He was the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Born of a virgin, according to Isaiah 7.14. Born in the city of Bethlehem. According to Micah chapter 5, verse 2. He came in the fullness of time. According to Daniel 7, if you read that. He was born under the law, just like all of us. And yet, Jesus lived above the law. He never sinned. Though tempted by Satan. Though, though um, rebuked by all the religious leaders and provoked by them. He never sinned. Never did He say a single swear word. Never did He think a single evil thought. Never did He do a single evil deed. He became the superman who was able then to save us. He fed the poor. He healed the sick. He made the lame to walk. He cleansed the lepers. He taught us about God. He showed us the true way to God. The Jews hated Him and nailed Him to the cross, which was the fulfillment of another Scripture. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a cross. And from the cursing of Jesus came the blessing to us because Jesus became the curse for us that we might become the blessing as we sang earlier today. I forget exactly how the song goes, but he, he, I know the verse. How's the song start? He became sin who knew no sin, that we might become His righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 22. 
He became the curse that we might get the blessing. He was the ultimate substitute. He died that we might live. He was punished that we might go free. And that's the Gospel that we proclaim to the world. And through faith in Him, not only can we know God, but we can be made right before Him and we can have eternal life, enjoying pleasures in His presence forevermore. And that's good news, right? And that's the message of the Gospel that we proclaim that we have. That's the message come from King Jesus that we are called to get out. We're called to proclaim that message. Now, certainly the direct application here comes to pastors and preachers. That's who Timothy is. In fact, all of Second Timothy is primarily pointing at me. That's why I found so much edification in this book. It comes to Phil, it comes to Darren, fellow elders, fellow pastors of this church. It comes to all who would seek to, to minister the Word of God among, among God's people. But, but as you've seen so often, it does flow and have other application to all of us as well. Don't think that this is only to me. All of us have this mandate from the Lord Jesus to go in the world and make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus said it's written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all nations. And that includes all of us to, to go, and certainly the primary responsibility of that falls on those who lead the church. But we're all called to do this in whatever way we can, whether it's proclaiming the good news to our children or to our, our relatives or to our friends or to our neighbors or co-workers, really to all we come in contact with. That ought to be the, the note that we sing. I want you to notice something just very subtle here. I think it's helpful for us though. Is that we're told to speak. We're not told to show people a package. We aren't commanded to invite them someplace. We aren't told them to give them something to see. No, we're told to tell people a message. We're told to speak to people that they might hear. Biblical Christianity is religion of the ear and not the religion of the eye. It's a subtle point, but it would do us well to think about that. There are religions that are religions of the eye. Religions of the eye are always looking for proof, looking for substance, looking for, for something here. And I think about Roman Catholicism is a religion of the eye. There's a reason why at the front center of every Roman Catholic church there's always a crucifix, Jesus hanging on this cross, a model of Jesus, an idol of Jesus, if you will. They want you to see, they want for you to see Jesus, and seeing, they want you to believe. There's a reason why Roman Catholicism has all these religious shrines that pop up all over the place where Mary appeared here. There is some miracle there and where, where thousands and millions even go and make their pilgrimage there because they want to see, they want to see the miracle because Roman Catholicism is a religion of the eye. Whereas biblical Christianity is a religion of the ear. How many times did Jesus say, He was near, let him hear? He doesn't say, He was eyes, let him see. He says, He was near, let him hear. Romans 10, Paul takes us through the syllogism. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. How do we call upon Him if we've not believed? How shall they believe in those who they've not heard? And how shall they hear unless they have a preacher sent to them? And how shall a preacher go unless he is sent? People need to hear. We need to be about telling them the news because that's how it works. Biblical faith isn't seeing is believing. Biblical faith is hearing is believing. When Thomas was able to see the risen Lord and put his hands into his side and put his fingers into his hands, Jesus said, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yes, believe. That's us. We've not seen the risen Lord. We've only heard about the risen Lord, but believing in Him, we are blessed in whom we have heard. And so it's no accident here. It's a subtle thing, but I don't think it's any accident here. Paul tells Timothy to open his mouth and speak. Preach the Word. Preach the message. And also here for all of us, the Gospel is to be our consuming desire. It was for Paul. It was to be for Timothy. And it should be to us. Think about Timothy's ministry in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Paul says this, "...until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture." to exhortation and to teaching. That is, I'm coming to you, Timothy, hopefully into Ephesus, and until I come, I want you to be reading the Scripture. I want you to be teaching the Scripture. I want you to be explaining the Scripture. I want you to be preaching. 
And he says, take pains in these things. Be absorbed in them, or literally be in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, Timothy. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he raises the stake. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Be absorbed in this, Timothy. Preach the Word. Let it be you. Let it be all that you have. And, and even right here, we see Paul telling Timothy, to, let it be all that you have. So preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction in season and out of season. That is, be ready with the Gospel all the time. When things are going well and people want to hear it, be ready with the Gospel. When things are going poorly and people don't want to hear it, be ready with the Gospel. It needs to be the single note that you sing. The constant melody of your life. Um, I think about the constant melody of of my life and I think about my four-year-old son who um, this summer saw Cars 2 for the first time. He's like a Cars fanatic. He's got these cars all, all over the place. And we're trying to reward him with potty training with these cars, and it's working well. But I think he saw this movie. Was it once that he saw this movie, Cars 2? And uh, while we were on vacation this summer, we're driving along, and all we heard was, da-da-da, 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 da-da-da. How long did he... Hours and hours and hours and hours and hours at a time. For days and days and days, for weeks on end. He's... He's got this one thing that he just beats this drum. And... I think the movie's coming out here this Tuesday. We're hoping to have a purchase it, I've not seen it, uh, purchase it and join in the joy of my son who loves these cars going around. And so I can hear finally, da-da, da-da. I think probably when we hear that, it's going to be like, oh, that's how it sounds. That's going to be good. In fact, no, SR did pull up on YouTube or something. Uh, uh, this is what he's talking about. It's got like, like, like a deep bass kind of da-da-da. But that's the one note that he's always singing, whether in season or out of season. That's the idea here. It needs to be the note that we sing. We need to preach the Word. The Gospel needs to go there. The truth of God needs to be the the thing that we sing out. In preparing my message this week, I listened to a guy in California who uh, Yvonne knew when she grew up um, with him. Um, He was was her youth pastor. And uh, he's been going through... He was going through 2 Timothy. These are messages 10 years ago. Uh, I happened to archive on my... My CD-ROMs, and um, they're not on the internet anymore, but I've been listening to them. And as I was listening to his message, I found out that this message, 2 Timothy 4, came about a couple weeks after September 11, 2001. So this was 10 years ago. He was preaching this message. And um, he'd just been going through 2 Timothy. And in this message, he spoke about the rise in attendance of the church. He said normally we had a church, a big church, averaging 2,200 people at the church. And uh, he said, yeah, since September 11th, though, the average attendance of the church was 3,500. The people flocked to the biggest churches in town is where people flock to for the most part. There's a time in our nation where they're looking for God. What answers? How could this happen? How could people just give their lives and fly into the Twin Towers and destroy everything? And where was God? And, and what do we do now? And we, our, our future is uncertain. We don't know. And people are coming in groves to churches to hear the Word from God. And it was a time when people were eager to hear. And to this man's credit, he just merely continued on in 2 Timothy, just pressing on and putting forth his message. He was sensitive to the increased attendance for sure. But he sought to be faithful to his message of just walking through there. That was a time in season. And he was ready and we need to be ready. Good times. We need to be about the business of preaching the Word. But when things are bad and out of season, we need to be about preaching the Word too. I received an email this week from a pastor friend of mine. He's a faithful man in a difficult situation. Among other things, here's what he wrote. He said, I would ask for your prayers for our church and the leadership team. Without going into all the details, I have come under intense fire lately by various members or former members. The disgruntled members are beginning to find each other. Then he listed a few reasons why people were disgruntled. And 
This man is just pointing out obvious sin in people's lives. They're coming to him for counsel, and uh, he's just telling him, and it's like a, it's like a black and white kind of issue, and he just tells it straight as it is. I'm sure I know him. He's a godly man. He shared it with um, compassion and kindness. But basically, when they've come to him with these black and white issues, they've not liked it, and they've fled to other churches. And in fact, one of the former members has been very vocal about her displeasure on Facebook, slandering him and letting everybody know about it. And maybe that's how members or former members are finding each other and stirring. And then he, he continues this in his email, Mature congregations would see this all for what it is and respond by praying for those who are in sin and support the leadership, etc. Unfortunately, our fellowship is full of immature members. The public slander and private gossip is beginning to have its impact on an already fragile church situation. And for him, the word is out of season. In fact, I'd like to just pray for him right now. You don't know who he is, but let's pray. Father, I pray for my friend in difficult circumstances, perhaps even now preaching the word. I pray that you would help him and strengthen him even out of season to stay true and to preach the Word. Thank you for His faithful expositions week in, week out, week out. His devotion to you and His devotion to the church. His devotion is to love people there even when under fire. We pray that He might not be discouraged in the work, but I pray He would fan the flame of the gift of God within Him and that He would fight the fight, the ministry that's before Him, and that you would help the church see brighter days. Father, I pray that you would help strengthen him now. In Christ's name, amen. Well, that's what pastors need to be about. This one thing is preaching the Word. Preaching the Word. I love John Piper's quote. I spoke this about ten years ago. I've kind of never really forgotten it. He said, You don't have to know a lot of things for your life to make a lasting difference in this world. But... You do have to know the few great things that matter, perhaps just one, and then be willing to live for them and die for them. The people that make a durable difference in this world are not the people who have mastered many things, but who have been mastered by one great thing. If you want your life to count, if you want the ripple effect of the pebbles you drop to become waves that reach to the ends of the earth and roll on into eternity, you don't need a high IQ. You don't have to have good looks or riches or come from a fine family or a fine school. Instead, you have to know a few great, majestic, unchanging, obvious, simple, glorious things or one great, all-encompassing things and be set on fire by them. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. Don't be distracted. Stay the course. I've been struck in recent days about reading about the life of Steve Jobs. Since he died, I'm just I'm fascinated with the guy. I didn't know much about him, you know, really until he died, or until sickness was coming, or and uh, you know that's what he was about. He was about one thing, just focus, and let's let's keep everything out. Let's just keep this one thing and change the world. He did and became a multi-billionaire. Now, now there are many faults in the man's personality, to be sure. It's, uh, I'm not not lifting him up as a moral example to follow, but I'm just saying that he's, he was a man of focus. And all of us believers in Christ ought to be people of focus, focusing on the Word and getting that out, letting that consume us. The Scriptures, may they flow off of our lips. Parents, your kids will know what consumes you. They will know what the passion of your heart is. And I just, just tell you, don't get distracted. Stay the course. Be consumed with one thing. It's the Gospel of Christ, the truth of God, the Scriptures. And be so on fire with it that you change those around you. It's my aim, my goal. I I so want to be absorbed in these things that I affect other people. And how does the Word affect people? Well, they're listed right out there. As you preach the Word, here are things that preaching the Word does. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Here we have three things that the Scripture exhorting people does. It sounds a lot like 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And here we have reprove, rebuke, exhort. It's a lot like that. You know, last week my message was, was called trust, trust, I forget what to call it. Trust 
Trust the Scriptures. Trust the Bible. Trust the Bible. Phil Gusky said, I should have called, what was my sermon been called? Take up the book. Take up the book, right? Remember that? Well, today, I'm not just going to tell you to take up the book. I'm going to tell you today to let it loose. So maybe this should be the sermon title. Let it loose. Charles Spurgeon is famous for saying, the Word of God is like a lion. You don't need to defend it. All you need to do is let it loose and the lion will defend itself. And that's what, what Paul is telling Timothy here. Spurgeon's words addressed to those who think they need to prove God's Word before people hear what it says. Spurgeon says God's Word doesn't work like that. God's Word, you just open it up and speak it forth and let it do work in people's lives. That's what Paul is telling Timothy. And so it's what I'm telling you to do. Just let it loose, alright? Let it loose. Eva, let it loose, right? Let it loose. Use God's Word to reprove. That's the first thing here. Preach the Word. In season, out of season. Reprove. They're showing people where they're wrong. There is a God in the universe. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Hell's a real place with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus is the only way to God. As God's Word gets out in the hearts of people, we have its effect. So Timothy, what's Paul saying? Let it loose. What's he saying? Let it loose. Preach the Word. He's saying, let it loose. Not only reprove, also the second thing here is rebuke. Use the Word to tell people how they are sinful. Your relationship with your boyfriend is wrong. Those words you often use are sinful words. Your actions are not pleasing to God. As God's Word gets out into the hearts of the people, we have an effect. So Timothy... Let it loose, right? So Timothy, let it loose, right? Preach the Word. Just let the Word go and let it have its effect. God's Word. So you preach the Word. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort. That is, direct people to the right way to live. Not just tell them they're wrong. Not just beat them down. But tell them how. Speak kindly to your children. Parents, speak kindly to your children. Paul was told the Lord's bondservant must be kind, not quarrelsome. Speak kindly to your children. Children, speak kindly to each other. Hold your possessions loosely and give to those who are in need. Show humility towards one another. Preserve the unity and the bond of peace. These kind of things, exhorting people, pulling them to, to the right way, to the right way to live. As God's Word gets out into the hearts of people, it happens a fact. So Paul told Timothy, Timothy, let it loose. Let it loose. Now, lest you think you need to be like a lion in letting the Word loose, you don't. Think about the guy who lets the lion loose at the cage. He's not growling at the lion. He just comes and probably opens up the cage and walks behind it and lets the lion out. And so when you speak to people, you don't need to be a lion in your demeanor. Rather, we need to be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves as we come with the stinging, piercing, active Word of God. That's how we open it. Reproving and rebuking. Letting, letting the lion loose. Letting the Word of God say, you know those words you're saying? Let me show you. They're... I don't think you should be saying them because this is here. Do you know the attitude that you have? Jesus says this. And just let God's Word pierce. Not your anger, not your hostility, not your attitude. And we have more instruction on how to preach this Word. Not only reprove, rebuke, exhort, but also He says, with great patience and instruction. Literally, with all patience and instruction. A teacher needs to be patient. People can't pick it all up all in one one gulp. Now what happens oftentimes is that people think that change should be instant. They they're doing wrong, they just need to know what's right and change should be instant. Parents, sometimes you can think that with your kids. What you're doing is wrong. This is what you need to do is right, and change should be instant. And when you're not, you're like you're like angry with your kids. But I just say, think about your own life. Sanctification slow. 
Right? You guys know sanctification is slow? And as the word is out and preached, be patient with people. Don't let anger and frustration set in. Don't let tensions in your relationship set in. But realize that, that you put it out there. Maybe people don't change right away. It takes some time. Give them some time. Give them some slack. It's the way to change people. It's to be patient with people. Be patient with them. Let God's Word have its effect. And when God's Word has its effect on people, it's slow. I wish it weren't so. I mean, I wish it were just, God's Word says this. Yes, okay, let's, let's go ahead and do it. I wish it was that way in my life, but it's not that way in my life. And I know it's not that way in your life because of our indwelling sin. God's Word is like a seed that you throw into the ground. It doesn't often grow immediately, though sometimes it does. Oftentimes the pattern is that it goes into the ground, it gets watered, it gets cultivated, and, and pretty soon it starts sprouting. Unbeknownst to you, underneath the ground, these, these roots start going out, and pretty soon it, it, it pokes up through the earth, and pretty soon then it grows. But it's slow. If you watch it, it doesn't, doesn't grow right away, but it, it grows slowly, and it grows it does, but it grows at its own pace. And too often we want to put a kernel of corn into the ground and boom! Right there. It's not how it works. So be patient with each other. Be patient with others. Parents, be patient with your kids. I think about these 495 messages I've preached at Rock Valley Bible Church. It's a lot of stuff. I mean, think about that. That's like almost 500 hours of instruction that we have received together in God's Word. Now, I know that all of you have not been there. Avon is probably the only one who's heard the vast majority of those. A lot of hours of instruction, but if you weren't here, you're some other place, whatever, you're listening. Um, and those are, just, those are just hours teaching. I know for me, you compound that in terms of the number of messages I've heard, the number of things I've read, and, and I see my sanctification is so slow. I need to be patient with myself. Uh, I so want God's Word to work in my heart and my life, but I understand how it works. That's why God's teacher, God's proclaimer, anybody who spreads the gospel, the good news of the gospel, ought to be patient. Be patient. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm satisfied with remaining sin. Not at all. I rejoice when others grow in their faith. When others put forth signs of love to Christ and faith in Him, my heart leaps for joy. But I just understand the struggle that, that happens and how we need to be patient. And May God do a work in us to grow us in Christ. Well, that's the charge. I, I told you it's going to take most of the time there in verse 2. We've seen the, the gravity in verse 1. We've seen the charge in verse 2. And now we see the reason in verses 3 and 4 about why to preach the Word. And it comes about because of the hearer. It says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. It's the reason why pastors need to be about preaching the Word in season and out of season is catch this, because people won't want to hear it. People won't want to hear it. And it's precisely those times when they don't want to hear it, when it's out of season, that they really need to hear it. To be confronted regarding their sin, to be shown the glories of Jesus which will overcome their sin. And... You know, throughout biblical history, we see people who were preaching out of sin when they, out of season when they didn't want to hear it. Isaiah saw this great vision of God, right? The seraphim around the throne. He's struck by his own sinfulness. God says, "Who will I go? And who will go for me?" Isaiah raises his hand, and says, "Here I go. Send me." And he says, "Okay, I'm going to send you out to a fruitless ministry. You're going to preach and preach and preach and preach, and nobody's going to be converted." Well, take that back. Some will be converted. You have just a stump of people. And Isaiah says, how long? How long? Well, until that stump is exactly the size I want it to be. Basically, he was to preach to, to people who didn't want to hear so that they would know that they didn't want to hear, so they didn't want to have anything to do with God. It was a hard ministry. But that's how he was to preach. Preach out of season was whole preaching ministry. When Jeremiah preached, the coming judgment was coming upon Babylon, people didn't want to hear Jeremiah. I mean, they threw him in the cistern on several occasions. These big water cisterns, way underneath the water, they just threw him down into the well, basically. Quiet! Shut up, we don't want to hear you! And they threw him down. Okay, 
Who do we want to hear? We want to hear those false prophets who say, peace, peace. And Jeremiah says this, Oh, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule in their own authority. My people love it so. They say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jeremiah just painting you how it is. He says, Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon is going to come and destroy us. We need to repent today. They say, no, no, you're lacking faith. You're not, you're not supporting your country. No, no, you're on his side. He said, no, it's how it is. A great picture that is, Jeremiah. When people don't like your message, then they cast him away and they find someone else that they want to hear and they hear the false prophets. They didn't want to hear Jeremiah's message of judgment. They wanted to hear the false message of peace. And what's true in Jeremiah's day, was true in Timothy's day, it's true in our day as well. This is the story, by the way, if you know, of mainline denominations that have gone liberal. People have drifted into sin and rather than confronting the sin and dealing with it, they just let it go. Pretty soon then they want to live in their sin. If preachers are going to confront that sin, congregation doesn't like that. So they're going to get them out, maybe bring someone else who's in, bring in storytellers who are a delight to hear. Eventually, if you get a storyteller, then that one's gone too far. And, and basically then you got pastors in liberal churches who don't say anything. So they don't go too far. They don't offend. So that they exist and so they stay. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. One of their ears tickled. They accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And churches have teachers in accordance to exactly what they desire. And, and, and notice, notice how this all happens. It first starts without, with those who don't want to endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is teaching that teaches and reproves, rebukes and corrects, exhorts and trains in righteousness. And people who love their sin hate that teaching. It's just how it is. They won't sit under such teaching. Um, had that circumstance here. It's not, not a lot of occasions, but I remember one in particular. Someone was engaged in some sin. I said, oh, that's a problem. Um, have you thought about that in your life? I, I, I'm not sure that's exactly right. And as soon as that man figured out that I was going to start addressing that issue in his life, he fled. I've seen it. That's how it is. Churches are like this. People who love their sin won't tolerate Sound doctrine. Now, you think about the dynamics of the church. Yeah, whatever, 100 people at church, you got some land, you got a building. Pastor starts coming, preaching them of their sin, what are they going to do? Just vote them out. That's just how it works. Vote them out, he's done, you get someone else in, you, you really try to think about the next person coming in. You find a soft preacher. It's not going to bring the sound doctrine. I can't tell you how many men I know who who've then entered into some of these churches. Look, churches looking for a soft preacher, and they're not getting soft preachers. Like my friend, who is basically coming to a church where they like soft preachers. But he's just cutting it straight. And he's not a harsh man. He's just a Bible guy. And they don't like it. And so, as the next step goes here, when they don't like it, they want to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. They, they don't want what's good for them. They want to hear what makes them feel good. And there's a big difference between those two. One is faithful to God and His Word, and the other is faithful to the whims of the people signing a paycheck. And how verse 3 puts it about gathering teachers in accordance with their own desires. See, it's their desires that are ruling the day, not the Word of God. And that happens often. Well, my friend came into this church after years of ear-tickling preachers, discomfort among the people. They aren't hearing what they want to hear. They want to hear stories. They want to hear what's a delight to them. They don't want to have sound doctrine. There's tension and conflict and there's a battle going on. It's a spiritual battle. The end result is churches have lost the truth of the Gospel. Look at the end of verse 4. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. That is, they will turn away from things that just, to, they will turn to things that just plain aren't true. They're denying the truth of the scriptures. They'll, they'll deny the reality of the final judgment. They'll deny the virgin birth. They'll deny miracles. They'll deny the deity of Christ. They'll deny the wrath of God. They'll deny the sinfulness of man. They'll focus all their attention upon the love of God. And in so doing, they've lost the gospel. 
what Paul's talking about here. People don't want the truth. They want to feel religious. They want to seek something that will satisfy them. And it's happened time and time and time and time again throughout church history. I see a microcosm of this oftentimes. Not me. I don't want to put percentages on it. Many times I've seen this. So, many more times I've not seen this. But sometimes I've seen this. Okay, but I've seen it enough. A lot, alright? When counseling others. Someone wants my counsel. Call me up, whether they're calling me up or look in my office. Sometimes they're looking for counsel. Oftentimes when people are looking for counsel, they're not looking for counsel. They're looking for agreement. Right? And if they happen to agree with you, they're happy. And if they disagree with you, well, they're unhappy. They'll seek another counselor who will agree with them. That's how it works. People aren't interested in counsel. They're interested in agreement. That's what's happening here. They don't want to be confronted. They want to, they want to be able to live under this preaching. And, and, and I think there is some application here for those who are church shopping in our days. And when you go shopping, what do you do? You look for something you like. And when you find something you like, you, you purchase it. And you say, yeah, this, this will fit, fit me well. And, and then as it maybe it breaks or something, then you push it aside and then you look for something else. Or, or maybe that didn't quite work it, so you cast it aside. Sometimes people can do that with churches. Today, churches put the product for people. If people like the product, they stay. If they don't like it, well, they leave. Now, I, I understand. If you're looking for a church, you've got to come in and see, well, what's there? What's there? I say the standard, though. Don't look for what you like. Look for, is the word being preached? Because if you're going to go there, it's going to be a good place. And I know the Rock Valley Bible Church, we don't have it all together. We can't meet everybody's needs. We don't fit in for everybody. And I, I know that's fine. I, I know um, the, also people found difficulties at a church and leave one church to go to another. I'm, I understand that. There's other church shopping. I understand that whole concept in America. Um, but I do know enough about the message of Christ crucified, how it is a stumbling block, how there'll be enough people who aren't looking for sound doctrine but are looking to have their ears tickled to leave. Have their ears tickled. If it's not tickled, they will leave. Uh, I, I can tell uh, enough by some people or conversations or people when you see them or they leave real quickly right after church or whatever. They're not looking for sound doctrine. They're looking for something to titillate them. If it titillates them, they'll stay. But they're not going to be titillated here, so they're not, they're not going to be here. Well, what's, even, what's even more terrifying is this. Is, is I know some churches that are just like a haven for sinning people in churches. Churches that won't deal with their sin are havens for these kind of people. And, and I, know of, I know of many I, I hear pastors of other churches in town. They have people in center of the church, and they just leave and go to this other church that doesn't give a hoot, doesn't preach the word. They just let them come every religious experience and leave. I just think about what's that church filled with. It scares me. I think about people who leave Rock Valley Bible. Most people who leave Rock Valley Bible Church. I mean, it is discouraging me, but most, almost everybody who leaves Rock Valley Bible Church isn't skirting away. There, there's some difficulty they've had with the church. Maybe they don't fit in. I mean, we've got a bazillion kids here. They don't have kids. They feel like they don't fit in. Okay, they're, they're trying for something else. Or we, we've moved or some kind of problem they've had. That's, that's okay. I mean, I, I understand all that. Program, programs we just can't offer. They want that. I, I, I'm okay with that. And most often, when people leave here, they go to another church where I can come in and say, hey, wonderful, you go there. Oftentimes, I've even spoken with pastors then or those churches and just say, hey, here you, here you go. You can shepherd these people now. Um, I hear they're going to a good church. But when I hear that they've gone to that church and then they've left that church and looking for another church, that starts to concern me because there's a pattern that develops where They've been here, it's not good enough for them. Then they go there, it's not good enough for them. And then they go there. I just, I ran into a man this week who came to us probably about a month or so, not a whole lot, was with us for a little bit, then left to go. And he said, this is where we're go- I'm going. I said, that's fine, it's a great church. Um, and so he's going to go there. And I, I was delighted. I saw him this week and I said, hey, you still going there? He said, no, not really. Sometimes I go in here and sometimes I go in here and... Just not, not really. And I told him, I invited him to church this week. I said, you ought to be. He's not here today. Maybe he'll come next week. I said, you've got to be someplace. Why don't you be here at Rock Valley Bible Church? We will love you. We will care for you. We will pray for you. We will help you in every way. But I'm concerned with those who just go from church to church to church to church. 
Always looking for something. I'm worried for their souls. I'm worried whether they're just looking for something to satisfy their ears. I really am. Will anything ever satisfy them? We don't have much here at Rock Valley Bible Church. We got the Word. We got each other. That's all we got. I think it's sufficient. But I'm fearful that people who bounce church to church to church are intoxicated with the itching ear syndrome. They want what's new. They want what's exciting. They want that which will stimulate them each week. And what I've observed often, they can't find it. They're looking for something they can't quite find because they haven't put themselves under the Word of God. Well, that's the gravity, the charge, the reason, and verse 5 is the resolve. We'll just we'll zip through this quickly. Four commands, real quick. The contrast. They're like this, but you, Timothy, you be different. Four commands. Be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. I think this concept about being sober is don't be intoxicated by the ear-itching syndrome. Don't be intoxicated by trying to please everybody. You just be sober. They may want something else, but you want what God wants for your life and thereby be the stabilizing rudder in all, all the life of the church. Be the one who preaches God's Word faithfully. Don't be quarrelsome. Don't be, be patient when wronged. Carry yourself with gentleness. Stand on the truth of God's Word. Be sober. Second, endure hardship. This has been the theme of 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 8, Join with me in suffering for the Gospel according to the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 1, Difficult times will come. Chapter 3, verse 12, All who desire to live God in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You put that even on the backdrop of Paul. Paul's own suffering. He's in prison when he wrote these words. About to die. He'd been suffering for the gospel. Faced trials of people deserting him. Being treated as a criminal. Doing harm against him. Being the target of evil deeds. And Paul says, I'm continuing on. I'm suffering because the gospel's worthy of this. Endure hardship, Timothy. Do the work of an evangelist. Third command there. It's called preach the word. Not only just within the comfortable four walls of the church, but also out in the neighborhoods and the public forums. Wherever people know Christ, tell them of the mercies of God and Jesus Christ. I mean, it's one of the most exciting things I think about this club, kids club we're starting. It's an evangelistic ministry. Kids in our neighborhood don't have parents, right? They're coming after school to come and hear God's word and eager they are to hear these things. We only have four people, four kids, but I'm looking to dig into them, encourage them to bring more. But I'm having a great time with that. And I, I think it's really a lot of this, do the work of evangelists. That is doing evangelistic work with kids. I think also, so I have opportunity. I really, really seek to do the work of an evangelist. would encourage you as well. When you have an opportunity, think about how to twist it for the gospel. I was talking to someone last week. I was out and about and got involved in this conversation with this guy. And he told me about how he, he went to church this week. I'm like, okay. And uh, we kind of talked about some other things. I noticed around his neck was a, a string, kind of a necklace kind of thing. And, and on, what, what normally, kids, goes on your neck? What's on your neck oftentimes? A necklace. And what's, what's at the center of a necklace oftentimes? A cross, right? Well, I've never seen this before, but he had a Buddha on his necklace. A Buddha in a lotus position. On his... Have any of you ever seen that before? I've never seen it before, but he talked about going to church. And so I said, oh, so if you're going to church, what is this Buddha? And I, and I went up to his neck and I kind of like flicked it. I said, what's, what's, this? what's this about? What, what does this mean? He says, oh, I go to the Unitarian Universalist Church. I said, oh, really? He said, oh, yeah, it's so great because I got education for my kids. And we're talking about all different kinds of religion and, you know, how there's many ways to God. I said, and, and genuinely I was sorrowed. And I said, but, but you've missed the glories of the gospel. You've missed the crux of Christianity. Christ died for our sins. And, and it's gone. The path to happiness, you just, it's not there. And we just kind of carried on. But I had a chance. I just saw a boot around the neck and made conversation to try. I want to encourage you. That was just this week. I, I try hard. So I have opportunity to speak to people, trying to do the work in advance. As a pastor, I'm telling you, it's really hard. It was a lot easier when I was in the working world, when I was up against non-Christians every day. But it's harder now. Because I'm surrounded by Christians. Finally, fulfill your ministry. That's the crux of verse 7, 8, and 9. When Paul says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the course. I've kept the faith. I've fulfilled my ministry, Timothy. And that's probably 30 years after he's fulfilled his ministry. 
And Timothy's probably on the, on the front end of that. He says, you know what, you've got maybe 30 years to go. Just keep on fulfilling your ministry, preaching the Word. Do what you have to do. And I just say what's true of Timothy is true of all of you. Be sober in all things. Right? Think God's Word. Endure hardship. Suffer rightly for the Gospel. Do the work of an evangelist. Right? Be little evangelists out there. Just preaching and teaching and directing people to Christ. And fulfill the ministry, whatever God has given to you. Well, there it is. The command of Timothy to preach the Word, which applies in some way to all of us in this room. Let's pray. Father, these words are rich, and I would pray that we would be about those who, who preach Your Word. Nothing else really matters in life, but that people would see the glories of Jesus and embrace Him turn from their sin, realize what a wonderful Savior He is, like Jonathan Edwards, who saw the immortal, invisible, only wise God, and what a delightful thing it is to be swallowed up in Him. I pray we'll be swallowed up in Jesus and be so delighted and content in Him that we can't stop speaking of Him. Thankful, O Lord, for Your work on the cross and help, I plead, you would give us help to fulfill these things. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.